0: It's a simple question, really. Why do race cars sound like that? Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second with a short rant around operating range. But first, here's a message from our sponsor.
1: At the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, people around the world stayed home and gardened. As a result, seed companies sold out their stock. Even farmers felt the shortage. You can prevent this happening again by becoming a seed saver yourself. No matter what your heritage, your ancestors saved seeds. Become more self-sufficient as a home gardener, contribute to community food sovereignty, and even save rare varieties. Several nonprofits teach seed saving. Just look it up. Be part of a grassroots movement. Return the power of food to the hands of the people.
0: If you've ever been around cars that are going as fast as they can, particularly manually shifting cars, what you'll notice is that telltale sound. Why? What's its purpose? Well, it highlights a paradox. It turns out that the fastest, most torquey, most powerful range of a car is near the red line just before the engine melts. And so, the goal of the race car driver is to push the tachometer as high as they can, and then, just before it's too late, go to the next gear and start the process over again. That the red line is where it all melts down, but just before that, just before that is the zone, the place where the car is the fastest. A lot of people bring that same attitude to work. If eight hours a day of work is good, then 10 hours a day of work is even better, and 12 hours a day of work is where you begin to beat the competition. And so there's a school of thought about work that you show up, you dawdle for a little while, and then you keep showing up and keep showing up and outlast everybody else. And the paradox is this. In the short run, it is entirely possible that four extra hours of preparation before a sales call or a presentation can make a difference. But without a doubt, in the long run, you will lose. You will lose because you will burn out. If we think about computers, if you buy a computer, it has a series of chips in it that do the work. If the software works to amp up how much processing you're asking the computer to do, it will heat up a little bit and will give you more return on your money in terms of computing power per dollar. But then, if it heats up a little bit more, it's going to melt. Again, there's a paradox. Or consider the word charrette which is a word some architects and designers use. The charrette describes what happens in the last few hours before a presentation is due. So you've had a week to work together as a team. Eight hours the first day, 10 hours the second day, 12 hours the third day, maybe an all-nighter. But then, in the last few hours before the thing is due, people's guards are down. They're too exhausted to put up a fight. They're now letting go of their preconceived notions. And in those last few hours, they are open to brilliance. And so during the charrette is when magic happens, except it doesn't. It feels like it might, except it doesn't. It is no substitute for somebody who is pacing themselves, doing the work, aware of what is going on around them and showing up as a professional day after day. That person will always outperform a similar person who is hooked on the charrette. An example with an inanimate object might be helpful here. For a long time, boats were pretty efficient. You could take a small cruise ship from England to New York without stopping to refuel. It's possible for a moderately sized boat to get 10 or 15 miles per gallon, which is amazing given that they're traveling on a fluid. But then, someone figured out that, particularly for smaller boats, if you overclocked the motor, you could get the boat to plane. And planing became what the weekend boater set decided boats were supposed to do. Hi
1: guys, thanks for tuning in. Uh, This is a quick tip for getting onto plane fast. I'm gonna put the throttle forward, and watch that wake slowly move towards me in the driving seat. One, one, let's rock.
0: The whole front of this bow is out of the water. Good day, folks. A good day. When a motorboat is planing, almost none of it is actually in the water. To make it work, though, you have to put 140 motor on a 70 boat. You've got to put a lot more power behind the vehicle to get it to do something it wasn't actually designed to do. And the mileage, the mileage goes from 10 miles to gallon to two. That a properly tuned planing boat gets terrible gas mileage and makes an enormous amount of noise. If you wanted to take a boat from England to New York, you don't want to take a planing motorboat because you'll never make it. It might be fun in short bursts, but it is inappropriate for the long haul, whether that long haul is one trip or whether we're talking about millions of people over the course of decades. But back to sports. Sports are interesting because they push human beings outside of their normal operating range. That is why there's surgery named after Tommy John, the pitcher. That is why it's impossible to find a ballerina or a gymnast who's still performing at 35 or 40 years old. It breaks people. And the more we measure, the harder we push people outside of their operating range. I have a friend who can run a five-minute mile. In order to make the state championships, he has to do it faster than five minutes. He has a friend who runs with him who can run a mile in four minutes and 59 seconds. And I was amazed to discover, as hard as he tries, he can't shave that one second off his time, which makes perfect sense when you think about it because if you could shave off a second every time you wanted to shave off a second, sooner or later, you'd be running a three-minute mile And you can't. And what has happened in most competitive sports is that last second is down to a last hundredth of a second. We are pushing people outside of their normal operating range. And so now we have a challenge. And the challenge is, are you going to win by doing the old trick, the thing that used to work for you, which is burning this candle at both ends? which is a ridiculous expression if you think about it, because if you do that, there's no place to put the candle while it's burning. Candles need candlesticks. They need a foundation. They need something to stand upon. The people who run the biggest corporations in the world, the people who run the biggest countries in the world, get exactly the same number of hours in a day as you and I. There's no proof that those last two hours that you want to spend banging away at the keyboard are going to translate into any advantage at all over somebody who has figured out how to stay within their range. At the very same time that we are being ridiculous and stupid about physical performance and about time performance, we tend to gloss over emotional labor, the hard work of showing up to do things we might not feel like, And part of the emotional labor is speaking the unspeakable to somebody who needs to hear it. Part of the emotional labor, though, is having the guts to let somebody else do part of the work. It involves using organizations and networks and structures to get far more done than we could ever get done on our own. That takes guts because what you are saying is, my job is to find people to do jobs. My job is not to do the job, and that feels difficult if you got where you got by doing the job, and so the paradox returns because the person who insists that they're the best and they can handle everything and that no one can do anything without their oversight and approval is actually undermining the work they set out to do, undermining the team they set out to lead, that inside the normal operating range— If we can bring emotional labor to the table, we are capable of changing the world. But it prevents us from having emergencies, from having charrettes, from approaching the red line on a regular basis. That means it's much less fun to watch. It's not going to become a sport in the Olympics. But it might just be that these sports where we are watching people break themselves aren't as benign. As we thought they were. So I guess the challenge is, do we know where our normal operating range lies? Are we willing to lean just a little bit harder into the emotional labor? At the very same time, we find the guts to consistently and persistently clock out when the shift is over. Because time isn't a shortcut. Time is a tool and we can use it. But when we burn it too much, we do it at our own peril. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with some questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. No ad this week. In fact, an ad about the ads. If you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a new button up there. Let me explain it to you really quick. My friends run akimbo.com a B Corp that hosts the workshops that you've been hearing about here. But the Akimbo podcast is separate from that. And so going forward, every once in a while, I will talk about some of the workshops my friends are running. But in the meantime, I'd like to talk about what you're interested in. In fact, I'd like you to talk about what you're interested in. So if you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a way that you can upload a 30-second ad for a nonprofit, for a cause, or even for a hobby that you care about. Nothing commercial, please. Of course, I can't promise I'll be able to include all of them. There are guidelines at akimbo.link about how to do it and what to include and not include. The focus is 100% non-commercial and non-profit. I can't wait to see what you've got going on. To hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A K I M B O dot L I N K, and click the appropriate button. Go ahead, try it. It's fun. While you're there, you can check out the show notes.
1: Hey, Seth, this is Emily calling from the Bronx. In response to your episode where you talked about bringing emotional labor to the work and being that one person. Whose scarcity of skills and emotional labor make them recognized and in demand, like Chip Kidd for book covers. I'm wondering if you could extend the riff um, to something that I'm trying to develop, which is the methods and approaches and philosophies to our work that will engender bringing emotional labor, or will attract people who do bring emotional labor to the work, and how we can cultivate those methods, approaches, and philosophies, as opposed to just maybe cultivating our own emotional labor and and name. Thanks so much for all that you do.
0: Thank you for this, Emily. This is a great question. First, a little background. Ariel Hochschild wrote a book about emotional labor in the 1960s. And the position in that book is that it was an unfair burden, particularly on women in low status jobs, like flight attendants. They had to pretend that they were happy, smiling all the time, and it took a toll. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, we prefer to work with others, to hire people, to choose to be in the line at the grocery store with somebody who is showing up with emotional labor. I have a mug that my friend Tina gave me that I love. And one of the things that it says on it is, we believe in giving a damn. And that's what we want when we hire a house painter or a car mechanic or a doctor. And what it means to be a professional today in a world where we're not digging a ditch, where we are showing up with decision-making, with care, is that people are showing up to give a damn. And to do that means... It's work. It's work to put yourself into a situation even when you don't feel like it. And it feels to me like calling that emotional labor is appropriate. So, one of the things that goes on, particularly for small organizations and freelancers, is that that can be your secret weapon. Because if somebody's just working day in and day out for a paycheck at a big company that doesn't care, they don't care either. And if you, the scrappy upstart, if you care more, if you are leaning into it, if you are being more professional, then you have a tremendous advantage. But Emily, you're bringing up a great point, which is that's almost never sufficient. What goes with it is having a point of view. What goes with it is being idiosyncratic because it can wear us out if all we do is care a little bit more. What we need to do is care a little bit more and also know A little bit more, have developed a skill, a point of view that people can tell our work from the work of other people. And this can work in organizations of more than one person. That's not the way things are around here. That if you are buying something from Patagonia, it feels different than if you're buying something from Kohl's, or at least it's supposed to be, because they have a point of view. But that means that we have to understand a genre. It means we have to understand the change we seek to make. And mostly, it means we are doing it on purpose. That there are lots of days I show up at work and I say, what would Seth Godin do today? Because on a good day, that is the role I am trying to play. I am trying to show up as a version of Seth Godin that he promised would be here today. And I didn't start with people like you listening to my podcast. I'm very lucky you are. Thank you. I started with 10 people reading my blog. And what we get if we show up with idiosyncratic behavior on behalf of the people that we serve is a chance for the word to spread. So thank you for that one, Emily. I really appreciate it. It's a great segue to a conversation about dignity and connection and the change we seek to make. Here we go.
3: I said, it's Andrew from Brussels, uh, avid listener since day one and loving the show. Uh, so, your last episode about happiness has really helped me crystallize a question that I've been having for, that uh, was kind of going around my mind for a long time. So, quick, quick backstory uh, I have an educational, educational business, educational YouTube channel. Uh, where I put out a lot of free content because I just love to help people. But the whole thing is uh, supposed to be a business as well, selling courses that, of course, help people and, I hope, make their lives better and help them make art, which is what my whole thing is about. But uh, as I'm doing that, there is, of course, a part of marketing that goes into it where I'm trying to convince those people to buy my stuff. Where did they... <laughs> We try, of course, to, to make sure that they need it, but how, how would you combine this with this idea of, of happiness and, and, and contentment and, uh, and, and trying to only hear the messages, trying to let's say not hear too many messages of sales, of, of, of pure uh, sales pitches, because it shows us what we don't have yet.
0: Yes, so to summarize, there's a tension, it seems, between serving people and selling them something, except I don't think that's true. I think there's a tension between serving people and hustling people. There's a tension between serving people and pressuring people to get them to buy from you, not someone else, to get them to buy right now. Manipulation is what happens if you know more than your customer does, and you trick them, push them, pressure them into buying something that they regret later. If they knew what you knew, would they be happy that you showed up? If the answer is no, then you should sell something else. You should make something else. You're a manipulator. You're a high-pressure salesperson. You are showing up and making the culture worse. But if we think about the stuff in our lives that we're glad we purchased, that we're glad someone persuaded us to buy, that we're glad we leaned into. All of those things, which is most of what most of us own, what most of us spend money on, all of those things are the result of somebody engaging in commerce. Not high-pressure sales, but commerce. If a doctor persuades somebody to stop smoking, that's not easy at first. If a waiter does a really good job of talking about today's specials in a way that gets you to buy a dinner that you ordinarily wouldn't have ordered. That's a good thing. If somebody shows up and invites you to join, I don't know, the local club, which has dues, and you end up being a lifelong member, that's a good thing. That when I went on a tour with Raul of the Palisades Boat Club, he was taking me on a tour so that I would end up becoming a member. And paddling my canoe there every day is one of the highlights of my life lately. I'm really glad he took me on the tour. Was it a high pressure sales pitch? No, because our definition of that is that someone is taking something from us when they do that. They're using local pressure, time pressure, social pressure to get us to do something we will regret later. So in your specific case, The generous work isn't giving it away. The generous work is shining a light, is opening a door, is helping people see what is possible. Then at some point in our digital world, you need to charge for what you do. What is it you're going to charge for? Well, you could charge for the version they can't see yet. So what you're doing in that situation is, yes, creating discomfort. You're saying to people, well, you read the first three chapters, but the next six chapters cost money. And that person is saying to themselves, wow, that's going to make my life worse in the short run if I don't pay this money because I want to know how the story ends up. I want to improve my skill or whatever this essay or this video is about. But that tension can be relieved. It can be relieved by making a purchase. It could be relieved in a way that makes me feel glad that I made the purchase. That's not manipulation. We create tension all the time. Tension is created to cause forward motion. If there is no tension, forward motion is very unlikely to occur. And so a yellow light causes tension. Some people say, as soon as I see a yellow light from any distance, I'm going to slam on the brakes. That's sort of dangerous. If you're most of the way through the intersection, you see the yellow light, you should finish going through the intersection. The yellow light was there to get you to go across the intersection. But the other thing that's happening in our digital world, as long as I'm ranting, is you don't have to hold things back to sell them. That what people really want to buy, what they wake up in the morning dreaming of, and what they wake up at night regretting they didn't get enough of, is connection and community and being seen. And yes, being offered dignity. So if you took the content that you were offering for free and used it, to attract a group of people who want to be connected, and then you charged that group of people a fee every month to be part of a community, you can make a fine living doing that. I have friends who have done that in many fields. It's been going on for a long time, and in the digital age, it's easier than ever. That doesn't mean it's easy, but it's easier than it used to be, all of which is a way of connecting these two rants to each other. First, that we offer people dignity by seeing them. And one way to see them is to say, no, thank you. And second, we offer people opportunity by creating tension in service of helping them get what they really want. Thanks again for your questions. We'll see y'all next time.
2: I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know? And none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, There is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like, we have data. What All MBA Gets Right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but When are you going to show up? When are you going to face that blank page? When are you going to face the possibilities within you? When are you going to face those fears? I'm not going to let you hide. You got to show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple. It sounds very commonsensical. But it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up.
0: Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.